VCY America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk. And thank you for joining us on Crosstalk here on VCY America. Ladies and gentlemen, history seems to have a way of repeating itself. Over the past several weeks, we've seen a huge rise in anti-Semitism in countries all over the world, and even by shocking rates right here in the United States of America. Today is November 9th. It is the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, in which the Nazis terrorized Jews in both Germany and Austria. It's also called the November Pogrom. We will hear from our guest on this topic today, but also we'll be taking a historical look at the United States standing by Israel. With us today, we welcome back William J. Federer. He's a nationally known speaker, historian, author, and president of AmeriSearch. Uh, He is the uh, speaker on the American Minute Daily Broadcast, has authored many, many books. Some of those uh, notable, America's Guide and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations, Who is the King in America?, and Socialism, the Real History from Plato to Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Well, Jim, great to be with you. And we're catching Bill on the go in between speaking engagements. Uh, Bill, before we look at the history of the United States standing by Israel, uh, just in light of the escalation of Jewish hatred, both domestically and internationally, we are mindful that this is the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Uh, in brief, if you would share with us what happened on this date 85 years ago and its significance in light of what we are seeing take place in the world today. Right. Well, Germany was a republic, the Weimar Republic, after World War One, And then in 1933, Hitler became the head of the National Socialist Workers' Party, or Nazi, and he, by one vote, became the chancellor of Germany, and he immediately began to put in place anti-Jewish policies, disarming the Jews, limiting their uh, real estate holdings. It's called the Enabling Act. And then you had um, the blaming of the Jews for their depression, for any problem that is, they blamed it on the Jews. But then on on Crystal Knocked in 1938, they destroyed 7,000 Jewish stores. Crystal Knocked means night of broken glass. And they smashed the windows. These were Antifa, BLM-type people, smashing windows, setting on fire, pillaging, raping. Uh, They destroyed synagogues. They destroyed uh, stores and businesses. Um, Just a terrible. uh, It was done by the Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers. And uh, the other was the uh, Schutz uh, uh, group. Uh, there was their paramilitary, the Schutzelstaffel, which means protection squadron. Uh, and then the Hitler Youth. These were young people that were stirred up with hatred. And they attacked these Jewish neighborhoods. It was uh, an unbelievable uh, destruction of property. They think that the Nazis wanted the money and so they could confiscate all the Jewish possessions. And uh, interestingly, the Jews, since World War I, with the Balfour Declaration, had been migrating to the Holy Land, the British Mandate. They had been given this land. And so initially, uh, the Germans were just letting the Jews immigrate, and a lot of them were going to uh, Jerusalem. Well, the Mufti of Jerusalem is a Muslim leader. And he did not like the Jews. And he actually met with Hitler and confirmed their mutual hatred of Jews. And he said, we don't want them. And that's what they think influenced Hitler to do the final solution of killing the Jews in gas chambers. And so the Mufti of Jerusalem raised an entire Bosnian panzer division of Muslims to fight alongside the Nazis. He raised an Arab legion to fight alongside the Nazis. And um, he... uh, After the war, he's going to be tried for war crimes. He flees to Egypt, and that's where he aligns with the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Mufti of Jerusalem's nephew is Yasser Arafat, and he was the leader of the PLO. So you get to see how they sort of pass this anti-Jewish baton down. Yeah. Um, But the the PLO was actually started by the 
the Soviets in Moscow, uh, after World War II, you had the, the Soviets going into countries and setting up these liberation groups to do critical theory. And that's where you divide a country into different subgroups, economically, racially, religiously, ethnically, and you pit them against each other to cause this internal division. And it, then they co-opt the media to blame the leader of the country for all the problems. When the leader's popularity drops, they do a coup or a rigged election, and nobody will challenge it because their public opinion had turned against the leader. And so the Soviets helped start ELN in Bolivia with uh, Che Guevara. They started FARC in Colombia. Uh, they helped Castro take over Cuba, Brezhnev and Khrushchev, and, and they started the PLO. And they intentionally created it to sow division. So they do not want uh, peaceful coexistence. Their goal is to create this crisis, this tension. And uh, so we, the World War I history of Israel uh, is, to, in a way, tied together with this crystal knot because the the Jews originally were just going to leave Germany and go to the Middle East. Um, and I in the find, middle of this, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I just found it very interesting when you were talking there, Bill, that uh, that that Hitler had a special relationship with the followers of Islam. Yeah, and the um, uh, when Hitler was finally, you know, assassinated or or committed suicide, however, in in April of 1945 in Berlin. Uh, they found he was surrounded by a hundred soldiers of the Arab Legion. These are Muslims in Berlin and uh, defending Hitler. And so, yeah, there was this mutual agreement. Um, and uh, also the Ottoman Empire had oil. And, uh, the, you know, in World War One, the, the Kaiser Wilhelm II wanted the oil from, from the Ottoman Empire. And, um, and Britain, by the way, wanted oil from Iran. So the... Uh, uh, but I did want to mention that Germany had the burning of the Reichstag. Now, the Reichstag was their capital building, and they had, uh, on February 27th, 1933, they had an insurrection at the capital. And evidence points to Hitler's own people setting the fire. But in the confusion, Hitler blames his political opponents for the insurrection Mm. that he caused. And he uses it as an excuse to have some hearings, to do some investigations, to question people, to detain people, to arrest people, and to have them shot without a trial. And when the dust settled, Hitler did not have any political opponents since. So this became a model of a seizing of a country's leadership. You immediately stage an attack against yourself blame your political opponents for it and use it as an excuse to have hearings and round up and arrest and eliminate your political opponents. Yeah. Yeah. Stalin did a similar thing in the Soviet union in 1934. There was a growing anti-Stalinist movement and obviously Stalin didn't like that. At the same time, Stalin had a supporter named Sergei Kirov who was giving speeches praising Stalin. And he was so popular the people built a statue to Sergei Kirov in Leningrad. Well, uh, Stalin had an idea. He would assassinate his friend and supporter, Sergei Kirov, and eliminate a potential rival and blame the assassination on the anti-Stalinists. Nobody would suspect he did the assassination because he and Sergei were friends. Everybody would believe the anti-Stalinists did it. Stalin used it as an excuse. They have some hearings to bring in people for questioning, for detaining, for arresting. And he killed over a million people in the first great purge of 1936. So this is standard operating procedure. Some group seizes power in a country, stages an attack against itself and blames the attack on their political opponents and has hearings and investigations so they can lock up and get rid of all their opponents so they can rule as as dictatorship. Wow. It's amazing. Bill Fitterer with us here today. And yes, this does mark the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, the Night of the Broken Glass, destroying some 700 or 7,000 Jewish stores, Bill mentioned. And friends, uh, the, the, the slogans that we hear today, that we've, been, uh, we've heard them not only here in the U.S. or seen them written, uh, also very loud in Australia, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. 
uh, is uh, the, the slogan that's been heard and uh, how horrendous this is. And Bill, um, as as we look further then at the history of Israel, the United States has really stood by her side from the, the very beginning and asked you to come on this program today to help us understand this historical relationship between the United States and Israel going all the way back to its birth and even before her birth. Right. So one of the things in America, we had the Second Great Awakening Revival, and there were people called millennialists. And these were people that discovered in the Bible that Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. And they noticed that the scriptures for them to be fulfilled needed the Jews to live in the Holy Land. And so you had Christians going to synagogues telling these Jews they need to think about going back to the Holy Land. And so here is a quote from the Jewish Chronicle, an author, Jeffrey Alderman. He says, the Balfour Declaration, which gave the Jews the British mandate back in 1917, says the Balfour Declaration was born out of religious sentiment. Arthur Balfour was a Christian mystic, mystic who believed that the Almighty had chosen him to be an instrument of divine will, the purpose of which was to restore the Jews to their ancient homeland, perhaps as a precursor to the second coming of the Messiah. goes on, the declaration was thus intended as to assist in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And it talks about Lloyd George, another British statesman, that says he believed in the prophecies of the Bible inside and out. And then there is a, a book called Israel, A History by Anita Shapira, uh, published in 2014. She said the idea of the Jews returning to their ancient homeland, excuse me, homeland, was a first step in, in, as, in world redemption, seems to have originated among a specific group of evangelical English Protestants that flourished in England in the 1840s. They passed this notion onto Jewish circles. So here you had Christians, Second Great Awakening Revival in America and in England going to the Jews saying, you need to think about going back there. And so this influenced someone named Theodore Herzl, and he organized the first Zionist Congress in 1897 in Switzerland. And one of the people attending, showing support for this, this movement to, for the Jews to resettle their ancient land, was Henry Dunant founder of the International Red Cross and the first recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And so um, after World War I is when the Jews were given this mandate. And um, sort of like America, after the Spanish-American War, we had Puerto Rico as a protectorate. After World War War I, the British had the Middle East as a protectorate. Mm -hmm. And um, if you like, I can get into that history. Tell you what, we're just 15 seconds from the break here, so we're going to take the break. And uh, we're uh, talking with Bill Federer today. Yes, folks, you'll hear noises in the background catching Bill in one of the airports across this nation as he's been uh, certainly uh, speaking and and, uh, impacting uh, such important historical truths to the hearts of many. We're taking a look at uh, the history of the United States standing by Israel. And uh, so, friends, what we have seen here of recent is not a new phenomena, and uh, we'll be delving delving further into that right after the break. This is Crosstalk coming your way from the VCY American Network. Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, president of the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, anything new found in outer space recently? Chris, there's always something new. Recently, the Hubble telescope located several giant gaseous planets orbiting around burned-out stars. Now, gaseous planets are not strange. Jupiter, Neptune, Saturn, they're all large and gaseous, so that's not a problem. What is a problem is that the Big Bang Theory dates these at 12.7 billion years old. This, according to the theory, is much too soon after the Big Bang to have formed the heavy elements which are present. They just don't know what they're going to do. Well, I don't know what they're going to do either, but I do know what they should do. They should give up the Big Bang Theory because it's wrong. It doesn't fit the evidence. There's got to be a better way. And there is such a way. It's found back in Genesis. Thanks, Dr. Morris. 
For more information, you can find us on the web at www.icr.org. You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America with a historical look at the U.S. standing behind Israel. Uh, Bill Fitter is with us here today. He is a nationally known historian, author, president of AmeriSearch, and documenting that for us here today to help us understand even the relationship that the United States has with Israel today. So we're going back to take a look at this, and uh, Bill's spoken of even the Second Great Awakening. And uh, Bill, uh, I understand also the fall of the Ottoman Empire has significance even in this relationship between the U.S. and Israel today. Right. So, um, you know, Israel was there, and then you had the 70 AD, there, Jerusalem's destroyed. 135 AD, King Herod decides he's tired of the Jews causing problems, and he wants to erase them completely from history, builds a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, changes the name of the city to Capitolina Jupiter, and then he scratches out Judea and writes on the map Syria-Palestina. So that is the first time that the word Palestine is used. It's Herod trying to erase the Jews from history. And then that area is then conquered by the Muslims, and it's conquered by the the Mongols, but then you have the Turks. So from 1200 AD to nearly 1923, you have the Ottoman Empire, and they go through an expanding stage, but then they're finally defeated at the Battle of Lepanto and the Battle of Vienna, September 11, 1683. And then finally, by the late 1800s, it's collapsing. Greece is breaking away from the Ottoman Empire. Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, all these countries breaking away, breaking away. It's called the sick man of Europe. And the sultan is Abdul Hamid II with his 13 wives. And left. he does an Armenian massacre where he kills hundreds of thousands of Armenians. Uh, but it's pretty well, Turkish Ottoman Empire is on his way out. And then oil comes into the picture. And in the 1800s, oil came from Wales. And the poor things are being chased to extinction until 1859. Oil is discovered in Pennsylvania, in, then in Oklahoma, and then in the Middle East. And so Winston Churchill changes the British Navy from coal to oil. But Britain only has one oil well in the Sherwood Forest, of all places. And so in 1908, Britain forms the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. Hmm. And then Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II, he industrializes, he needs oil, so he makes an alliance with the Turkish Ottoman Empire, the Berlin-Baghdad Railroad. And so you have Britain siding with Iran, Persia, and Germany siding with Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. And then World War I takes place, and the afterwards... The map of Europe is redrawn. The map of the Ottoman Empire is redrawn. And the French take a little part. The you know, Russians won a little bit. The Italians won a little bit. Uh, and the British. And they get Egypt. They're guarding the Suez Canal. They get uh, the, the Middle East and they get Iraq. And um, there was a Jewish chemist named Chaim Wiseman. And, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, the Jews fled Russia. Right. And this Russian Jew... Time Wiseman comes to England, and during the war, the British have a ammunition shortage. They need a solvent in the process of making ammunition, and it's called acetone. And so, Chaim uh, Wiseman takes breweries and turns them into a ethanol butanol acetone process. And the British now have more than enough explosives, helping to win the war. Afterwards, they want to thank him, make him a sir or a knight. And he says, no, I'd really like a homeland for the Jewish people. So they give the Balfour Declaration of giving the land from Mediterranean to Iraq and Syria down to Egypt uh, to the Jews. And then a monkey wrench is thrown in the works. Lawrence of Arabia. Who is he? He's a lieutenant in Cairo, Egypt, and he's sent on a reconnaissance assignment to meet with the Arabs to see if the Arab Muslims would join the British in fighting the Turkish Muslims. And he was just supposed to report back, but instead he takes it upon himself to promise the Arabs that if they help the British, they will get all the land in the Middle East. And Lawrence of Arabia admitted he lied. 
in his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, 1922. He said, had I been an honest advisor to the Arabs, I would have advised them to go home and not to risk their lives for fighting for such stuff. But I risked the fraud of my conviction that Arab help was necessary to our cheap and speedy victory in the East, and better we win and break our word than lose. For being a successful trickster, and to prevent this unpleasantness arising, I began in my reports to conceal the true stories of things. Why is this important? Because the Arabs claim they should get all the land in the Middle East based on Lawrence of Arabia's admitted lie, hmm. yet the Jews get the land in the Middle East from the authorized gift of the Balfour Declaration by the British government. And so it's the same land promised to two different groups. One is authorized and one is unauthorized. And so the uh, Arabs that helped the British, the main one was the Sharif of Mecca, Hussein ibn Ali al-Hashimi. And Sharif is a blood descendant of Muhammad, and his family, called the Hashemite family, they ruled Mecca from the 10th century on. And they were relatively moderate. And so uh, the British take uh, al-Hashimi, the Sharif of Mecca, they take his son Fazl, and out of the old Ottoman Empire, they create a brand new country called Iraq, and they make Fazl king of Iraq. And now Fazl thinks he's also going to get Syria. And at the San Remo, San Remo conference, France decides it wants Syria. And so France goes into Syria with its army and drives out Fazl. Well, now this almost causes another war. So Winston Churchill pulls a quick one. He takes the land the British had given the Jews and he cuts it in half. And he gives everything east of the Jordan River called Transjordan to Fazl's brother, Abdullah. So we have the Sharif of Mecca, who helped Lawrence of Arabia get the Arabs to join with the British to defeat the Turks. And the Sharif's son, Fazl, is king of Iraq. The Sharif's son, Abdullah, is king of Jordan. And Winston Churchill is the one who picked him. He says, oh, I mean, he's, he said, I, pick, I decided one day to pick Abdullah to be the king. Wow. It was that. And, um, and so now the Jews already have given up land for peace. They've given up half of the land that they were promised. And um, then you have um, now Fazl. He's still a nice guy. He's the king of Iraq. And he writes a letter in 1919. We feel Arabs and Jews are cousins, having suffered similar oppression of hands power that's stronger than themselves. We look with sympathy on the Zionist movement. We wish the Jews a most hearty welcome home. And so he's at the Paris Peace Conference. There's pictures of Chaim Wiseman with King Fazl. And, um, and it's, it's a pretty nice setting until the British try to muscle the father, the Sharif, to cave on some negotiations. And the Sharif says no. And the British are like, okay, you don't want to play with us? We're going to stand back and let Abdul Aziz ibn Saad. We're going to let the Saud family take over Arabia and drives him out of Mecca in 1924. Now, why is this significant? The Saud family is Wahhabi, and they have a Salafi teaching that is violent. And even Lawrence of Arabia said the Wahhabi are a violent Muslim heresy where everything is puritanical. Everything is forcibly pious. And um, so these Wahhabi believe in cutting off arms and legs and believe in, you know, harems and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, William McCants wrote of the Brookings Institute. He says, Saudis promote a very toxic form of Islam that draws a sharp conflict between a small number of true believers and everyone else, Muslim and non-Muslim. In other words, the Wahhabis are happy to kill a peaceful Muslim as well as kill a non-Muslim. And so this... So after World War I, the Ottoman Empire is gone. It was a blow to, to, to Islam. They, their, their big Islamic empire is no longer. And like the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, it caused the Japanese to say, hey, not just that our emperor let us down, but our, our religion let us down. They became open to westernized things. The Middle East became open to westernized things. And so after World War I, you had the um, leader of Turkey, his name is Ataturk, 
and he is a secular Muslim, and he would say things like, um, the purpose of the religion founded by Muhammad was to drag them into Arab national politics. It may have suited tribes in the desert. It is no good for a modern progressive state. And so Ataturk outlawed the Arabic language in Turkey. He outlawed the fezes and the burqas and the beards. He outlaws the calls to prayer. He's the first one to have women educated. He um, changes the weekend from Friday to Saturday and Sunday so they could be assimilating with, with Western Europe. And then you have the Shah of Iran, and he loved America. And he's meeting with the different presidents. You have pictures of girls in Kabul, Afghanistan, going to school wearing skirts. And you have beauty pageants in Syria. And Cairo, Egypt, it looks like the Beach Boys with the Southern California. And you got Gamal Nasser, and he's secular. In 1958, Gamal Nasser of Egypt said, I met with the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, and he sat with me mm-hmm. and made his request. What did he request? To make wearing the hijab mandatory in Egypt and demand that every woman walk in the streets wear one. Well, wow, wow. I told him, my, my opinion is every woman should decide, every person should decide for himself. He said, mm-hmm. no, you're responsible. He, I told him, sir, you have a daughter in the School of Medicine. She's not wearing a tarha scarf. If you're unable to make one girl wear one, your own daughter, how do you want me to put one on 10 million women myself? And the sustained laughter of the audience. And so the, the, the Muslim world viewed themselves as moving in a Western direction until the Wahhabis. Now, uh, Mecca is where the Hajj is. So five pillars of Islam. The fifth one is once in your life, you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Well, they would do it when the Hashemite Sharif was there, and it was more of a traditional thing. But now they're coming and getting infected with Wahhabism and then going back to four corners of the world. And then 1938, oil is discovered in Saudi Arabia Hmm. and Standard Oil Company. And one generation, Saudi Arabia goes from the poorest country with camels and mountains of sand to the richest country. And they begin to spend billions of dollars exporting Wahhabism. And the rest of the Muslim world said, well, why why should we be more westernized to be blessed? Uh, look at Saudi Arabia. They're more fundamental Wahhabi, and look how much money they have. And so it was, became a magnet for fundamentalism. And so this um, uh, Aziz Ibn Saud in Saudi Arabia, um, he uh, meets with FDR in 1945 after the Yalta Conference. And um, FDR supposedly met with him to see if he'd help the Jews resettle, and he blindsides FDR, says, Jews are bad, bad, bad. And he does an oil for security agreement where he'll supply oil to America if America will defend him, his Saudi regime. And, um, and, and so uh, the Saudis, in 1928, uh, you have the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood. So now this is significant because every terrorist group today traces itself back to the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And the Muslim Brotherhood started by Albana, who was six employees of the Suez Canal Company that at the time was run by Britain. Um, they said, Allah is our uh, objective. Jihad is the way. Death for the sake of Allah is the highest of our aspirations. And the Muslim Brotherhood bases its strategy on the two cities Muhammad lived in. Friends, we're going to have to break right here. Bill Federer is with us, and uh, stay with us in this next segment. Yes, we are going to get to the birth of Israel, 1948, and uh, and uh, learn how the U.S. has stood by Israel, not only then, but uh, certainly during the uh, Six-Day War, during the time of uh, Yom Kippur War there as well. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Crosstalk. For thousands of years, mankind has been fascinated with the question of what will happen in the future. Many have turned to palm readers, horoscopes, or a myriad of psychics for answers. However, one of the places people have refused to look is at the pages of Scripture. Jesus himself was asked by his disciples, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus responded in the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Bible prophecy teacher and pastor Richard Schmidt addresses and explains these powerful prophetic chapters in his book, Tribulation to Triumph, the Olivet Discourse. 
VCY America is making available this book for a donation of $15 or more. For your copy of Tribulation to Triumph, call 1-800-729-9829. William J. Federer, our guest here today on Crosstalk, the U.S. standing by Israel. We've gotten a lot of history, things that were going on uh, at these times, and even leading up to FDR in 1945. Bill, uh, let's get to the birth of Israel and what was happening. We know that there are communications between uh, Israel on the, even the day that, that uh, she announced her birth and, and other matters were going on. So uh, here in this segment, we will have to cover a lot of ground here in uh, uh, from the day that uh, Israel became a nation, and looking at some of these other wars that were going on as well here since. All right, so uh, FDR said he would not recognize Israel as a nation in his letter to the king of Saudi Arabia. He dies a week after he writes that letter. Truman becomes president, and Truman recognizes Israel. It's the first major thing that the United Nations does. Uh, the story is Chaim Weizmann the British said, we've had enough. We're going to release our British mandate to the Middle East, and we're going to give it all to the U.N. And the U.N. was not going to recognize Israel. So Chaim Wiseman goes to Washington, D.C., but Truman was busy, didn't have time. And so uh, Truman grew up in Kansas City. He went into World War I, and he had a Jewish friend, Eddie Jacobson. And they fight together in World War I. They run a PX together. After the war, they run a haberdashery in Kansas City, which is a men's clothing store, with Eddie Jacobson. And, and then Truman enters politics, and now he's president, and Eddie Jacobson calls. He says, Mr. President, uh, Harry, you know, could do me a favor. Uh, Chaim Weisman's come all halfway across the world. Just to, Can you just spend a few minutes with him? And Chaim Weisman meets with Truman and says, you have a chance to change the world and fulfill this promise of the Jews going back to their land. And Truman says, okay. And he, there was actually one of the American ambassadors in Europe about to give a speech saying, we're not going to support it. The phone rings. He picks it up. It's it's Truman's staff saying, we changed their mind. We're supporting Israel. Wow. And he goes out and he's, he changes his entire notes. And so it's, it's May 15th, 1948. And immediately the Arab countries attack. And, uh, and the Jews miraculously push back. And, the, uh, and then you have... Um, the uh, uh, Suez Canal crisis. So Gamal Nasser in Egypt seizes the Suez Canal, which was run by the British and built by the French, but he stops all Israeli ships. And so France, England, and Israel invades, captures the Suez Canal, lets the ships go through, but now uh, Egypt threatens to side with the Soviet Union. So France and England pull out, and now Israel's left in charge of the Sinai Peninsula. And Eisenhower says, look, land for peace, give up the Sinai Peninsula, you'll have peace. Well, the Jews give it up, and guess what? They don't have peace. And now Egypt decides to invade Israel in 1967 with June 5 to 10, the Six-Day War, with all the other Arab countries, um, and the Jews win. And they take back Jerusalem. And uh, for the first time in thousands of years, the Jews have Jerusalem. And uh, one of the little uh, providential things was that... um, the Egyptians had their air force, and the night before, there was a party with a famous belly dancer, and all the commanding officers were at this party, and the next morning is when the Israelis attack and destroy the air force, and the people are at the air bases trying to make phone calls to, to get their commanders to say, what do we do? But they couldn't reach them. Wow. So anyway, um, but the, uh, uh, and then you have, that's Six-Day War, then you have 1970s, and Golda Meir is the first woman prime minister of Israel, and she meets with Richard Nixon, and America is supporting Israel. And then you have um, the uh, uh, 1972, these Wahhabi Muslim Brotherhood-inspired people kill the Jews at the 1972 Summer Olympics. And then you have 1973, where Egypt invades and Israel, and they're driven back. And Israel again takes the Sinai Peninsula, and Jimmy Carter at the Camp David Accords has the head of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, and the head of Israel, Menachem Begin, to the and they do an accord, and it's the land for peace. But it is peace, and they both get the Nobel Peace Prize, and the Muslim Brotherhood are so upset, they infiltrate the Egyptian military, and there's a parade. In the middle of the parade, the military turns and sprays the bandstand with machine gun bullets and kills Anwar Sadat and wound Mubarak. 
and um, uh, but that's the land for peace. And then at the shortly after, you have Jimmy Carter, and he abandons the Shah, who was our big ally in the Middle East, and lets the Ayatollah take over. And then uh, Reagan, I love him, but when the um, Iran starts Hezbollah in Lebanon and they attack a U.S. Marine barracks and kill 241 U.S. Marines, uh, Reagan had the U.S. pull out of Lebanon. And um, and so you uh, then have uh, Israel uh, being surrounded um, with these different Muslim groups. And um, But America has always stood by Israel. And uh, you had the... Uh, different presidents, uh, all giving, you know, Hanukkah addresses, supporting Israel. Um, you had uh, us defending them. Uh, and then, of course, President Trump moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which uh, acknowledges Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Right. Now, uh, the Palestinians, th- there is no Palestinian history book. There were no ancient Palestinian kings. There was no ancient Palestinian language. It's Arabic. There's no Palestinian dress or food. It's just Arabic. Um, and so when you had the 1967 war, the surrounding Muslim countries said, look, uh, to the Arabs who are living in Israel, they said, leave. We're going to destroy Israel. You can come back and you can have the farms. Well, they leave, but instead of the Jews losing, they win. And so now instead of these surrounding Arab countries assimilating these people, like America assimilates people all the time, the Arab countries wanted to keep them as a separate group called Palestinians so they could be an international pawn to push for the destruction of Israel. And so that's where you have the PLO, which was started in Moscow um, by the KGB, and then they had Yasser Arafat, and they are keep pushing to uh, eliminate Israel. Uh, the word peace in, in Islam is world Islam. The world peace means world Islam. So when they want peace, they want Islamic domination. There are modern Muslims that just want to live and get along, but then there's this Wahhabi, Salafi teaching, and that's where we get all these terrorist groups today. Yeah, my, and and just reading the Quran, and that's how how their their book uh, guides them in that regard. And I know you've got a You've got wonderful resources as well on on this. And uh, Bill, your website is AmericanMinute.com. Is that correct? Right. AmericanMinute.com. And and a book is called What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam and the United States. Yeah. And friends, you can see the significance with that. By the way, let me just share some breaking news that came out during this program. And that is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia just released a video saying he will not be running for re-election. So Joe Manchin not running for West Virginia. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this coming Tuesday, November 14th, there's going to be a March for Israel rally in Washington, D.C. The Times of Israel indicated this March for Israel is being organized by the Jewish Federation of North America and the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Uh, Just uh, earlier today as well, the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry calling for Christians to attend and show the Jewish community that they are not alone. That being said... This past Tuesday night, there was a bipartisan group of House lawmakers showing their support of Israel Israel by holding a a candlelight vigil for Israeli victims and hostages. They were on the east front steps of the Capitol Hill. Both Speaker, uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson was there and he spoke. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries was there and he spoke about the barbaric attacks on, on Israel by Hamas and reiterated our U.S. support for Israel. Well, they had a moment of silence, and then House Speaker Mike Johnson actually led in prayer. And friends, I'd like to share that prayer with you that that he prayed just Tuesday night on the Capitol Hill steps with his bipartisan group of congressional lawmakers. Our Heavenly Father, we just call out to you tonight in mourning and with heavy hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we see what is happening uh, to Israel, to innocent men, women, and children, civilians, at the hands of evil men. And and our prayer tonight is that you would strengthen and encourage those hostages, that you would be with them, present with them in their time of great need, that you would comfort the families who are missing their loved ones and strengthen and encourage them as well. We, We pray for the families who are mourning the just unspeakable losses and and the evil that they've had to endure. 
And Father, we cry out to you for goodness to prevail over evil, for light to prevail over darkness, that, that those that have evil designs would be thwarted in their purposes and that their strategies would fail, and that the leaders of Israel would have wisdom and stamina and discernment on how to proceed, that the, the troops and those that are fighting for Israel and fighting for good would be protected and would have great success. And, Father, there would be an end to this terrible episode in human history. Father, give the, the leaders here the wisdom on how to proceed as well. And, Lord, help us to be unified as one as we do what is right and just. And we remember the admonition of Scripture that we are all to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the peace of Israel. We ask and believe and pray this all in your name. Amen. That was House Speaker Mike Johnson. So, Bill, from from the very inception of Israel to even, you know, this week, that was the Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, actually praying for Israel. Uh, America has stood by this nation. It has. And I think it's, uh, you have 9 million Jews surrounded by 400 million uh, Muslims. And again, Lots of them just want to live in peace, but it's this Wahhabi violent teaching. Now, in 1948, the Democrat Party platform stated this. President Truman, by granting immediate recognition of Israel, led the world in extending friendship and welcome to the people who have long sought and justly deserved freedom and independence. We pledge full recognition to the state of Israel. We affirm our pride that the United States, under the leadership of President Truman, played a leading role in the adoption of the resolution November 29, 1947, by the United Nations to create a Jewish state. We approved the claims of the state of Israel to the boundary set forth by the United Nations, and, um, and they go on and on. But this is the Democrat Party platform, and it ends by saying that uh, the state of Israel has the right of self-defense. Um, Truman writes to Israel's president, Chaim Wiseman, I've interpreted my re-election as a mandate from the American people to carry out the democratic platform, including, of course, the plank on Israel. Mm. Uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, he talks about uh, supporting Israel, and he talks about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and, uh, in his um, address in Oklahoma in 1961. Lyndon Johnson, uh, 1968, America and Israel have a common love of human freedom and a democratic way of life. Your forefathers clung to your Jewish identity in the land. And, um, uh, and so then you go on to, you know, the other different presidents. So this has been a, um, a, a history, even in the colonial times, America looked back uh, uh, to ancient Israel. The Puritans saw themselves as copying Israel. That's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. So uh, just a fascinating history that we need to be reminded of. Friends, our phone number to Crosstalk, 800-733-9829. We know time is brief, so if you have a question you don't want to ask, just get right to the point of the question. If you have a comment, just go right to the point of your comment, 800-733-9829. William J. Fitterer with us today as uh, we talk about the U.S. standing by Israel, our number 800-733-9829. A quick break here. We'll come back to your phone calls on Crosstalk, as well as uh, just reminding you of uh, Bill's website, AmericanMinute.com, where you'll find lots of historical uh, uh, teachings as well as resources that are available on multiple different issues. That's AmericanMinute.com. Back in one minute here on Crosstalk, coming your way from the VCY America Network. For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. Many people today are defending the so-called Palestinian state and Hamas, flying the Palestinian flag. But what do they really know about Hamas? Article 13, the Covenant of Islamic Resistance Movement, this is the document of Hamas, states, quote, there is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time and vain endeavors, end quote. And then there is Article 7 of the Hamas Charter that calls for the day of judgment will not come until 
Muslims fight the Jews. When the Jew will hide behind stones and trees, the stones and trees will say, Oh, Muslims, oh, Abdullah, there's a Jew behind me. Come and kill him, end quote. Hamas is a terrorist organization founded in 1987. I don't think Christians should be defending this group at all. This is Crosstalk on VCY America. Bill Fitter, our guest today, has the U.S. stands by Israel, giving us that historical look here of years gone by and uh, even up to the present here uh, with that most recent rally on the steps of the Capitol and then also this coming Tuesday in Washington, D.C. Let's go to the phone lines. We have John calling from Goodyear, Arizona. John, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I just had a quick comment about the relationship between U.S. and Israel. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to remind people of USS Liberty, not to forget about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second comment I wanted to make was that Christian Zionism is the biggest danger to America uh, we have ever seen. It started from Schofield and Darby. So without I Christian disagree. Zionism, there would be no support for Israel. Okay. Uh, Bill, you disagree. Tell us why. Yeah, I I believe that God has fulfilled prophecy in having the Jews come back to the land that they had been in. They brought back a dead language. For 2,000 years it had not been spoken, they brought it back. It's a miracle that Israel is in existence, and Christians had a part in that. And and so uh, I think the uh, replacement theology is off base. Uh, That went back to St. Augustine and the you know, fourth century, and it had been four centuries since Israel had been dispersed and destroyed by the Romans. And so St. Augustine is saying, well, what do we do with these verses that talk about the promises of God to Israel if there is no Israel? So Augustine says, well, the church, the church fills in. And so whenever it says promises of Israel, it means the church. Now, I believe that those promises are for the church, but that doesn't take away the fact that God made the promises to Israel. And even... Um, you know, in, in the different prophecies in the Old Testament, it says, I will gather them back a second time, and right. I'll bring them to the land. And so it's, it's um, uh, a miracle that Israel exists. Uh, America is at a part. Lincoln talked about wanting to go back and walk in the land where Jesus walked. And uh, and the fact is that God so, made this, and, and we, we have to move on to other callers here, uh, but God made this an everlasting covenant with Israel, uh, a land covenant, a people covenant as well. Uh, we have Julie next in Pensacola, Florida. Julie, you're on the air. Hi, uh, yes, and I may have missed this, and you may have talked about it, but I kind of wanted to find out from you if where Hitler was from, what background of a religion did he have any Jewish background in his in his past? Uh, yeah, I think he did, and uh, which is makes it all the more ironic that he would turn against the Jews. Um, he was from Austria, and he um, uh, was what fought in World War One. You know, there was the, the Christmas uh, peace where they the, the the Germans and the French stopped fighting over Christmas and. And Hitler was like so upset about that, and, and he like, no, we should, we need to fight. And so he wrote his Mein Kampf and his and came out. He, he drew from Darwin and said that the um, the Aryan race was superior, and so Hitler wanted to eliminate uh, inferior races from the human gene pool. There was um, the idea came from Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood in mm-hmm. America, and she had a magazine and she published the articles of. Um, uh, different, um, so one was a German, I think it was Ernst Rudin, but he, he had a, uh, uh, department of, um, racial hygiene. It's like racial hygiene. No hygiene is washing hands. What's racial hygiene? You wash the gene pool of inferior races. Yeah. And so it's totally unscriptural. God made us all. God gave us our DNA and it's, it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. You and your, your heart decide to, worship the Lord. Thank you for so the well. call here, Julie. We well, yeah, we'll go, anyway. go to Dave in Viroqua. You're on the air. Hey, I just wanted to go back to one of the comments that he, he, Mr. Federer made earlier um, regarding the uh, organized attack that was during Hitler's reign that made it look like it was the political opponents. And I'm just struck by the parallels in our country with yeah. January 6th. And um, it's it's interesting that we're just repeating history again and again mm-hmm. and again, and yet God is still 
on the throne, and his covenant with Israel is not going to be broken. So um, we just have to keep looking up and realize that um, we're just fallen human beings, and we we have a way out, but it's it's not going to be through our government or any other yeah. way in the world. Keeping it, our eyes on amazing. Jesus. Yeah. Thank you, Dave, for that observation. Scott in Clarksburg, West Virginia, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, I believe it's God's will that uh, the Jews and Christians took back the Holy Land, otherwise they wouldn't be there, and uh, that it's all working together for good, for God's plan, though a lot of evil may come, but it's working to the results that God has already, you know, already put in place. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. Okay, thank you very much, and let me also squeeze in Holly in Anderson, Indiana. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you for your program. Um, I'm calling because of the national day that you're having next um, um, Tuesday about walking at the Capitol in support of Israel. I'm just wondering if you know of any in other areas, like say I live in Indiana, that maybe people are getting together and gathering in groups to uh, go in the capitals in their areas. Do you have any thoughts there? I, I don't know of anything organized in that regard, and this is not our rally as such. VCY is not organizing this, but but uh, this is uh, the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. They're holding this at the National Mall in D.C. on Tuesday, November 14th, 1 p.m. Uh, local time. Uh, this rally, uh, whether or not, uh, probably uh, events will take place if um, uh, organizers putting things together don't have any information on that here at this point. Thank you for the call. Uh, Bill, uh, we're down to just a minute. What would you like to leave with the listeners here? Yeah, um, ancient Israel, uh, God gave the promise to Abraham, whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed. Uh, I think we need to stand with Israel. Uh, there are globalists that want to have a third world war so they can do their great reset and institute their plan. But nevertheless, I think that, that we need to stand with Israel, this little country where they have democracy. There's more Nobel Prize winners, more inventions coming out of this little land. And they even have hospitals where they take care of the, the Arabs that try to kill them. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing how you can have people in America uh, be these young students be, be turned so easily, not knowing the history. So, so I think we need to stand together with them, pray for them, and, um, uh, and just realize we're getting closer to the end. Uh, but this is the time that the good Lord chose for us to be alive. So, so let's stand up for righteousness. Indeed. For My website's American Minute, if anybody's interested. AmericanMinute.com. And uh, for such a time as this, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Federer uh, d- joining us here on the go. And Bill, thank you for carving out time and giving us this uh, historical lesson here today. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Bill Federer with us. AmericanMinute.com is their website. Many, many wonderful resources that you'll find there through his site on many different topics and and, uh, just the history of this nation as well. You'll find a number of them also uh, at CrosstalkAmerica.com. God bless you, folks. Thanks for joining us today on Crosstalk. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from BCY America. Views expressed may or may not be those of this station. For a CD of today's program, send a donation of $6 or more to VCY Tape Ministry, 3434 West Kilbourne Avenue, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53208. Or download by RSS or podcast from CrosstalkAmerica.com. And join us again for Crosstalk. Crosstalk.